Hi Tash, thanks for joining me on Care Under Fire. You've had an incredible career across Army, including operational service in East Timor and Afghanistan, work with New South Wales Ambulance, the RFDS, and now you're in an Aboriginal health role. Let's start at the beginning, I guess. Um, Tell me about your younger years growing up, how you found school and what pushed you on that pathway to joining the Army. Thanks, Emma, and thanks for the invite to your podcast today. Um, Yeah, so grew up in Sydney. Um, I have an older sister who I'm very close with, a couple of years older than me. Love going to school. I remember even times when I was unwell and obviously sick and mum would say, you know, you need to stay home. But I I was very keen. I was very eager to always go to school. I was, I guess I had quite an early thirst for knowledge. Um, And and just regarding, I think you, you asked how and why I got into health or how I kind of landed where I am. Yeah. Um, and I think my earliest memory of my dream to be a nurse was when I was just five years old. And I have a very clear image um, of me being in kindergarten with Mr. Zogelmeyer, my lovely teacher. Um, <laughs> and, he, and he asked us to draw a picture of what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I remember drawing a picture of me wearing a dress you know, the, the triangle-type dresses yeah. a five-year-old would draw, um, <laughs> with, with with a hat featuring the red cross and the word nurse, N-E-R-S. And I guess throughout the, the next 12 years of schooling, I like most young teenagers, I guess, I'll change my mind, you know, a billion times of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And whilst I initially started to study another degree straight after my HSC. I I guess my interest, my strong interest eventually returned to nursing. I've always been interested in the human body and and that and fears and um and it, it still really fascinate fascinates me, I guess. Um and I know it's quite typical to say, but I, I genuinely like helping people and I, I find it really rewarding. Yeah, cool. So you entered a Bachelor of Nursing, is that right, to begin with? That's right, yeah. So did Defence sponsor you in that degree or did you sort of join later on? That's right, yeah. So I completed my first year of Bachelor of Nursing um, and then with a a bit of um, G-Res time at my belt, I then applied for an undergraduate scholarship um, through the Australian Regular Army. So then they sponsored me to complete my second, third year of my degree. And, yeah, that obviously got the momentum going to, yeah, about nine years um, ARA in total. It's such a good scheme. I mean, getting paid while you go to uni, having a job at the end, getting your hex paid for, uh, it's a good deal. Oh, it, it is fabulous. <laughs> I, yeah. I think I was the, the envy of a few um, friends and, you know, other students who, you know, would – race off from, you know, a day of lectures, you know, to do their part-time jobs and et cetera. And I just had to study. Like it's it's fabulous. Yeah. And obviously they want all of your time and energy and effort to go into your study and 
yeah, it's a, it's a great scheme, as you say. And eat a bit more than two-minute noodles. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so what you, you mentioned you are in the reserves before that. What yes. did you do with them? Yeah, so I initially joined the reserves actually um, as an officer cadet. And, and to be honest, it was by chance only. I had, I had always been interested, I guess, had this underlying... Yeah, all of interest, I would say. Um, and, and growing up, Anzac Day was always a significant day in my family, including extended family. Um, my mum's dad, so my grandfather, was in the 2nd second, second, 6th Armoured Regiment um, and he served in World War II as part of the Kokoda campaign. And then my mum's brother, so my uncle, was in 4th Field Regiment um, and he was sadly killed in Vietnam at just age 19 and I, and I think as a child I learned of the sacrifices you know both my uncle and grandfather made the impact that had on my family and overall the significance of the Australian Defence Force so yeah it seemed appropriate that when the the young officer shouted out you interested or what you know kind of from the recruitment tent I thought you know Now's my time. Um, so then was I that just at a local show or something. Oh yeah, it was actually um, <laughs> at uni, first year of uni, probably yeah. during O week. If I think back to it, seems like many years ago, Emma. Um, <laughs> and then yeah, I went into this tent, and you know, um, next minute I'm signed up for the officer cadet scheme, and you know, I was doing various courses at different areas in New South Wales. But I was always more interested in the medical side. I remember, you know, travelling to Victoria once on this course and doing an exercise soon after, but I was always drawn to the medic and always interested in their their kid and what patients they treated that day. So after a short, very short time, um, I transferred to medical corps as a GRES basic medical assistant. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, which I loved. Yeah, I bet. That's how I started off too. I think that's how they get you in. You know? <laughs> it works well, doesn't it? Just have a little Do taste. Some cool kit, and you're like, oh yeah, this will work. Yeah, that's it. And it's big responsibility, I think, as a youngster. You know, late teen, early twenties, yep. and all of a sudden you're you're going on exercises and courses, and and you're it to be looking after a hundred plus men. Um, yeah. You know, having never even turned an oxygen cylinder on before, I think. Um, yeah, big responsibility, but I loved it. I loved the challenge and, yeah, had um, had some amazing opportunities as a, even as a reservist. So. Yeah, it's a really good kind of grounding and a bit of a taster and um, gives you a bit of an idea of what the wider army is yes. like. So that, yeah, when you did graduate and, and then come back in, you sort of had that foundation and you at least knew... The basics of how to salute and get around a base without looking like an idiot. So. <laughs> it's after battle, <laughs> it's isn't valuable. it? valuable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is indeed. Yeah. And go out field and know what you need and, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So did you do a couple of years in a civilian hospital? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just skill consolidate and yes. do the hands-on? Yeah, that's right. I um. I worked at St George Hospital, which is a major trauma hospital in southeast Sydney. So I worked there for two years. So the first 12 months I um, did the new grad program where you 
do rotations of three to four months in different areas and then worked about 12 months in ED. And then after that two years, after um, consolidating skills, I then, I guess, donned the green and, and off I went. Posted, yeah, yeah to initially to HSB in Brisbane. Was there anything in those couple of years working at St George that shocked you or surprised you not having really, you know, been in that hospital setting or seen people that were really unwell before? Is there anything that stands out? Yeah, I think um, initially I, I started off on a medical ward and I think just the intense workload and expectations placed on a nurse, like working on a ward, it's really heavy and and hard work, um, you know, and the importance of time management and the ability to prioritise. I think you you soon learn those skills um, even as a junior nurse. And I guess one thing you only really touch on at uni, but I, I saw it for myself even on that first rotation was there's a whole lot more to a patient than simply their physical health. Um, yeah. You know, the emotional needs of the individual in particular and you know, those with prolonged admissions into the hospital. And it was my probably my first real exposure into the real burden that illness and injury can place on a person's world and and how whilst it may seem like a physical injury, it obviously then impacts their mental health, social health, and also the stress it places on the patient's family. Yeah, yeah, looking at that holistic picture of who they are. Very yeah. much, yeah. So in your first year as a new grad, you got a funny story for me and you got to tell it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess as a, a baby nurse, um, as we were commonly known as um, during the undergraduate program, so rotations in different areas within the hospital, uh, I did a rotation in orthopaedics, which I absolutely loved. Um, and one challenge I did find, though, working in ortho was this very new and different interesting language that I guess that was spoken I remember on five south which was the orthopedic ward I worked on um, you know from orif to collies fractured and off all super new terminology for me um, and we'd all gather at the commencement of the shift and receive a collective handover um, from the outgoing nurses and on this one occasion there was another new RN to the ward um, who looked kind of as overwhelmed as I felt um, and she handed over a patient and I remember her saying the patient had a fractured bibber and she went on to say what treatment she'd provide, et cetera. And I remember writing fractured bibber, B-I-B-A. Um, I remember writing it down and, <laughs> and thinking I must ask my mentor, like, what a bibber is, you know, where it is anatomically. And as I'm writing bibber down the particular nurse's mentor says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's not a fractured bibber. The patient was brought in by ambulance. By ambulance. Um, <laughs> yep. And, of course, yeah, we all had a, love a good <laughs> We had quite a good chuckle and, you know, to this day I'm still not sure what part of the body, um, you know, what, <laughs> that she'd been looking after for the eight-hour shift. <laughs> Maybe the ambulance was fractured on the way in from the trauma of what happened. Potentially. Oh, wow. Hilarious. I love it. So what did you think rocking up at 2HSB in Brizzy? First <laughs> first posting, young little LT. Little LT. I, look, I was very keen. I, was, I, I remember 
paying for my own flight from Sydney to Brisbane and I'd obviously liaised with um, my OC at the time to say, oh, I want to come up. I want to do a bit of a recce before I'm actually posted to your unit. And he thought this was so bizarre. And he said, you know, this is, we can't kind of fund this. This is going to be your cost. But that didn't bother me. And so, yeah, I went up and, and met some of the crew and I just, yeah, wanted to know, I guess, what it was all about. You know, I was still very young, kind of fresh out of home. So, yeah, walking in, I was very eager. I was very keen. So you're at 2HB. Did you go to Rifle Company Butterworth uh, as soon soon after sort of marching into that posting? Um, so the Rifle Company Butterworth was um, a deployment I did as a G-Res medical assistant. So um, that was before I had joined ARA. So, yeah, I deployed as part of Rough Company Butterworth, um, based in Malaysia for about three months. Again, quite a junior young medic. Um, there was a sergeant medic I worked alongside and a, a lieutenant nursing officer who was quite green as well. And, yeah, that was a fabulous opportunity to do some really good training, um, you know, exercises in the jungle where I, I learned the definition of humidity, I think. And it was just, you know, a good fun trip. Um, and it was on this deployment, actually, that I – sounds like I was on a holiday, sorry. Um, it was on this deployment, though, that I realised I wanted to do this full-time. So I'd done some continuous full-time service for six months to deploy to Malaysia. And whilst I was there, actually, I applied for the undergraduate scholarship um, with ARA. So – yeah, overall, it's, I guess, um, yeah, it was a good decision. It was a good decision and, and great opportunity. Yeah, great training, absolutely. To see how the, the full-time army worked, yeah. if you like. Yeah. So at 2HB, you do all your initial courses, obviously SSO. Was it the um, field nursing course back then? Or that's Yeah, field nursing, that's right. Have a good time down in Albury-Wodonga. Yeah, yeah, look, again, I loved, I, yeah. I still enjoy, you know, education and um, doing various courses, et cetera. But, yeah, I loved it. it again, great opportunities, um, you know, the, oh, I'm not sure now what you call it, you know, with CIMEN and the, um, what do you call that kind of education, that training? They do, like, the. Yeah, simulation is the word I forgot. The simulation training, yeah, it was, um, it was excellent. And, again, great networking, you know, to be, you know, having quite a few weeks with probably 15 to 20 other quite junior um, nursing officers across the country. Like, you know, I still have contact um, with a lot of those mates and that I think you mentioned earlier, that's, one great thing I loved about defence is like just that mateship and that camaraderie um, is really special. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the team. Yes, indeed. Great. Yeah. Um, so where where to from 2HSB? Um, so 2HSB, I deployed with you um, to Opostute in Timor-Leste. So I was there yeah. for about four months um, as part of the Australian Military Hospital based in Dili. So initially mm -hmm. I deployed as a nursing officer um, with the medium dependency unit and I did a couple of months there and then I got a bit of a, a field promotion. <laughs> um, 
I, I was invited <laughs> to then work alongside the SMO. Now I've had a blank again what my actual role was. It was more of a an admin role and initially it was a a captain GSO that was in the position and they asked me to kind of step up and, and do this role. And it was essentially organising repatriation of our troops home, like those that had significant injuries. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of now the the role, but essentially the the sidekick to the SMO, uh, more of a logistical role, which I really enjoyed actually. It was a, a good challenge. Um, at that time, we weren't clinically overwhelmed with patients. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that challenge. So the military hospital in Dili was sort of set up initially when the operation was there to quell that unrest and stability uh, in around 06. Was the, the hospital set up when you got there already or did you have to kind of put it on the ground? Um, so when I deployed, I deployed must have been a few weeks, kind of four to six weeks after I think the a lot of the main body, and I can't re- recall the reason why, but the medium dependency unit went a little bit later. So um, by the time we got there, the hospital was quite well established. In saying that, we were still eating ration packs and, yeah. you know, I remember that was one big complaint, obviously. Um, got to keep the, the troops happy, keep their tummies full. <laughs> um, but we used to go in a vehicle, you know, body armour, star in hand, and we'd go down to the the local wharf um, in very small groups and we're invited onto one of the Navy ships for a feed every few weeks. Um, but it's just funny. Yeah, the Navy Yes, so well. don't they? <laughs> um, and yeah. then we got upgraded to hot boxes, so everyone was somewhat happy. But, yeah, the food on um, mm. this Navy ship was amazing. So, yeah, one of the highlights. <laughs> no, um yeah, so it was pretty well established, but obviously we made changes and it expanded as more kind of troops arrived, yes. So uh, did you have a surgical capability then? We did have surgical capability. And obviously yes, holding yep. and while you're waiting to yes. move people back to Australia yeah. or wherever they exactly need to right. go. Exactly right, exactly right. What kind of patients did you see? Were you just seeing Australian Troops, or did you see local nationals as well? It was mainly Australian troops. Um, there, there was a couple of occasions where we did see some locals. Um, so we had a, a few families actually that that was essentially on the the same grounds as the Australian Military Hospital, and they um, their house had burnt down during um, this unrest. So they had found shelter under a, a large tarp near us. And I remember the lady was heavily pregnant. And, and yeah, it was it was quite challenging. I remember once she came to me and, you know, we had this lovely communication and would say hello every day and check in. And, and then she asked me to do her blood pressure once. And um, it just became quite complicated then because we weren't there for them. But yeah, I, I remember feeling quite challenged and you know, I want to help this lady, but I remember the SMO also reminding me that, you know, once you kind of do a blood pressure, then she thinks where is under the impression that we're her healthcare provider, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah. There, there was a couple of challenges. It was a very good learning experience for me. Um, and I say it, it was mainly the ADF that we were looking after. Yeah. Hmm. 
I found that uh, that med row or the medical rules of eligibility for each operation one of the most morally difficult things to get my head around in my career because I guess as a clinician you're always wanting to do the best for everyone and give them good care and look after everyone and like you would in Australia throw all your resources at them and then you get to an environment when you're not allowed to because uh, they don't want to create a dependence on an ADF facility or they need to push them back to the local system and it is so hard to look someone in the eyes and not be able to, you know, give them the full suite of care that yes. you would like to. well said, Emma, and that you've put mm. it beautifully. It's exactly, yeah, your moral compass um, kind of gets a bit of a hit, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So and I guess the other thing about Timor and people probably don't realise you're yes. carrying weapons, you know, you're still in a threat environment, um, you've, you've got a clinical role but you've still got to maintain that operational situational yes. awareness and and not be a liability. So, yeah, they can be kind of hectic, a lot of those peacekeeping ops uh, and, and very varied depending on when you're there and what you happen to see. Yeah, absolutely. Time. When you're in... Timor, you saw a bit of trauma there as well? Yeah. Yeah, I initially deployed um, as one of the nursing officers in the medium dependency unit. Um, and But one of the jobs I remember actually occurred in the operating theatre and I remember at the time, like, literally people come running out of the the tent saying, you know, who's a specific blood type? I, I don't recall what they were requesting now and um, the patient on the operating table had deteriorated and the the surgeon and anaesthetist um, deemed it necessary that he needed a, an urgent blood transfusion. So they, they did a field blood transfusion whereby collecting whole blood from donor or donor soldiers, if you like, um, and transfusing it yeah. into the patient. In um, This is within the Australian Military Hospital. Um, Again, really, whilst I didn't um, donate blood, I was the wrong blood type, but amazing to be a part of this. And, again, it's not something that you see back here. No, no. And I think uh, out of table as a military, we learnt a fair bit from from the need for that, you know. Yes. Even not in Afghan, we always had sort of the role two, role three um facilities there's always plenty of blood but it could rapidly become exhausted and you know you run through your, your products pretty quick so they then out of the sort of lessons learnt, they run that walking blood bank where they started pre-screening hundreds of soldiers for type and basic infectious diseases and then should there be a mass cas or if the resources or those blood products were all used up they'd start basically calling them in based on what they needed on the day and it would be literally out of one person and into the next. Mm, it so is an amazing process, isn't it? It's incredible that we can get the kit to do that and and deploy it in a really remote and austere setting. Obviously it's not ideal in terms of antibody screens and I'm not a pathologist and that, but if someone's dying and you can give them, you know, blood that that's going to work for them in the interim, then it's just phenomenal. Absolutely, yeah, yeah life-saving. 
yeah. And, you know, and hopefully the guys that are donating haven't had too much fun on their on their leave in Southeast Asia or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you can only hope, hey. This is true. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So fast forward a few years, you get what probably would be most nurses dream posting <laughs> to Special Operations Command, to Commando. How did you feel going into that role? Yeah, look, I... I was quite surprised, to be honest, like to be invited um, to go. Oh, at the time, it was the Incident Response Regiment, um, which is now SOAL, the Special Ops Engineering Regiment. Um, and I felt quite honoured, um, to be honest. I, I still felt, felt like quite a junior nurse, you know, and then to be told that I was the right person for that particular position. Um, yeah, I, I was really proud and, you know, excited to go there um, and to be you know working within so comma as you say it's um for a lot of healthies it's a, a dream position isn't it to be kind of working with the best of the best like the, the elite yeah. soldiers yeah how did you find that transition from the sort of regular army environment quite regimented to socom and and also being a female nurse in SOCOM and the physical requirements of that job. Yeah, I, I guess one big change for me was, um, you know, the workload was significantly higher. There there was a lot more pressures and challenges, as I mentioned, working with elite soldiers and engineers. But with that came great reward. Um, you know, these individuals that you're working alongside and supporting and providing med- medical assistance to a obviously highly trained, motivated, dedicated professionals. Um, the the PT, the physical training was next level, but I loved, <laughs> I loved the physical challenge and I loved like it was such a big component um, of your position there. You know, probably not many people love the on-call component, but um, obviously really important as well. Yeah, and... I think that the biggest shift for me was coming from a HSB where it's all about the the doctors and the nurses and the medics, um, you know, and the allied health and support crew. But then stepping into a, you know, engineering regiment um, in SOCOM, it was quite a big shift, I guess, because they're obviously the focus and the priority. So... You know, I did have some challenges, I guess, and frustrations. You know, you would organise this fabulous training at the local emergency department or in operating theatres for airway management, you know, but then at the 59th minute, if there was a range that they couldn't cover or a course they needed a medic on or a nurse on, then, you know, that was the priority to support the engineers. So, yeah, I, I found yeah. that challenging. But, look, I... I appreciate big picture stuff if you like and yeah overall it was amazing it was a fabulous opportunity and can you just talk a bit on your role there I know you had primary healthcare team responsibilities uh, had to be able to run a resus as well and you also took on this chemical biological radiological <laughs> CBRN suite of responsibilities with IWR. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you certainly wear a few different hats. 
as a nursing officer or even as a medic working, I think, at IRR. But again, great opportunity to do further training um, in CBRN, which is obviously quite specialised. So I had the unique opportunity to travel to Canada for about two weeks with IRR um, and partake in live tissue training, which was just exceptional. It was some of the best training I've done even to date. Yeah, great opportunities working in SOCOM. So do they basically anaesthetise a pig or whatever and then, you know, under general anaesthetic might sever an artery and you guys have got to plug that pretty quickly? Absolutely, yeah. And you obviously have different equipment, even, you know, working in health, I think um, they seem to have a, a much bigger bucket of money and rightly so. So, yeah, I remember, like, using quick clot and, you know, different um, techniques and consumables um, on these live tissue. So, yeah, it was excellent. Yeah. And you did the uh, CBRN stuff over there too. So you're up and you're putting all that operational stress on yourself and trying to operate in that environment and treat casualties. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's probably the next best thing, you know, to or the closest thing to deploying on Warlock operations, I think, with SOCOM. Um, and as you say, adding that CBR um, stress to it, it, it changes your whole perspective, you know, in the dark with smoke, you know, minus NVGs kind of environment with um, your patients, you know, exsanguinating it. Um, yeah, it was great training. Fabulous. Yeah. And then... Uh, sort of 20 or oh, 2009 you got to deploy with SOTG to Afghanistan I did yes um went to Afghanistan as a nursing officer with the primary healthcare team um for a period of about five months and again again sorry fabulous opportunity and certainly the the pinnacle and highlight of my career in the defense force yeah, yeah, got I say quite a few um, fond memories and and some you know kind of traumatic events that occurred over there, and I'm happy to talk a bit more about those if you like him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I guess the the memories I have, as I say, aren't all clinical related. You know, one of the things I loved doing was teaching first aid via an interpreter to the Afghan police force. Yeah. Again, very unique. Um, I'd certainly done, whilst I'd done some education, I'd never, you know, taught people where, you know, English is a second language. And, yeah, I just remember because obviously their culture is very different to ours and, you know, they wouldn't normally be seeing a female we carrying a weapon and we had to move down the road a couple of kilometres to our location where this education, where the first aid was going to occur. And there was three or four vehicles from SOTG and we kind of said, jump in the vehicle to the, the local Afghan police, jump in the vehicles and we'll hit, hit, take you down. Well, all these young uniformed police officers um, lined up and they all wanted to come in my vehicle. <laughs> so I had like <laughs> um, five of them squeezed in the back of this Hilux um, shoulder to shoulder and just giggling like little schoolboys on the way 
you know, to this training, well, I say training, makeshift training facility. And it was just hilarious. Again, in their culture, women wouldn't be driving cars, um, you know, and carrying rifles. And obviously things changed a lot. Um, you know, I, I used to run a few times a week with my friend Habibi, who was a soldier with the ANA, the Afghan National Army. Uh, yeah. Again, he didn't speak a word of English and I didn't speak much of the local language. And But we would go for runs and, you know, we'd every now and then look at each other, kind of give a thumbs up. That meant generally meant you could run another kilometre. And, again, at the time it wasn't a threat. It wasn't, you know, seen as... There was no green on blue happening at that point, no, was it? It was pretty open-based. So. Very much, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, look, yeah, it was great, great opportunities. I mean, from, you know... Gunshot wounds, um, IED injuries to medical presentations. I remember having an outbreak of gastro and I was the only clinician at base at that time. Everyone else had deployed outside the wire and I just remember having, you know, kind of more men that I knew what to do with coming and knocking on the door at all hours, like with this gastro. So... Look, it was, again, great opportunity and, yeah, I, I think it was quite challenging being the sole female nurse, I guess, um, particularly when others were deployed outside the wire. And I think I look back and it was probably similar to a, a remote area nurse kind of position where you're solely responsible, you know, mainly primary health. Um, obviously, you're getting those more acute presentations, you know, your chest pains, your fraction arms, etc. And, yeah, look, we had support and assistance down the road um, in way of the MRTF medical officer and obviously the Dutch Roll 3. But, yeah, it's yeah. A, a massive responsibility and it was a great learning curve, great learning curve. You're their nurse, so you're their first point of contact. That's it, absolutely. To, yeah, if they need to go down to the Roll 3 at that point, then, yeah. Mm. And you worked with the dust-off crew while you were over there as well on some of the AME uh, birds, didn't I you? did, yeah, yeah. They, um, I remember initially, whilst I didn't deploy in that role, they realised quick, smart that you know we talked about holistic care earlier, Emma, and the importance of you know that mental health and social well-being. I guess so. It was decided pretty early on that you know whilst the the dust off was run by um, the US medics that perhaps if a Australian soldier was injured in the field, that it would be of great benefit if they had an Aussie familiar face there at point of injury, you know, to yeah. um, extricate them. So, um, yeah, I only did a couple of those missions, but and then they were both gunshot wounds um, with really good outcomes. So, yeah, again, it was, it was just fabulous. And as I say, certainly the, the highlight of my military career. Yeah, you're landing in a hot zone and you're picking up a point of injury and you're being that face and you're giving resuscitated care and taking him through the roll three. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was excellent. And did you want to sort of talk about any other cases you saw over there? Did you work down at the roll three as well? No, no. We did a little bit of training there and I guess we were more on call if there was a mass CAS incident. Um, yeah. And, and similar, we would go down to the the US um, facility 
um, and do some training um, with them. But, you know, whilst I was there, there, was, there wasn't a mass CAS, you know, in or around the base, so um, which is obviously a good thing, um, weren't required. So I didn't actually yeah. do any work with them um, other than the training. So, Tash, when you were in Afghan, you lost a mate over there? Yeah, we did. Sadly, um, Brett Till was killed in action. Um, Brett was a mate and a, a comrade um, also from IRR um, on the same rotation as me. Um, and, yeah, to experience that traumatic loss of a mate um, absolutely broke all of us, if you can imagine. Um, I know it left me feeling sad, anxious, somewhat helpless and and powerless, you know. I'm there to be a, a nurse to, to help people and how can I provide this aid if um, I too am broken and, you know, how do you – you can't fix this, you can't make this better. I actually had the what I see as an honour um, retrieving Brett's remains from the battlefield um, where I – witnessed my close friends in the acute stages of grief. And again, I just remember like feeling so overwhelmed and so sad, but, you know, and my, my instinct was to hug my mates, you know, but you're in a, on a battlefield and yeah, I just, yeah, quite a, a life changing event, I guess. Um, and, and whilst at the time, I didn't feel like I, I did enough for my friends and colleagues that were, I say, left behind. They had to remain outside the wire. They still had a job to do. But, you know, upon reflection and, you know, years later, you you learn, I guess, these, these simple acts of being there for your mate or a simple hug or a pat on the back, you know, it, it makes a big deal, um, makes a big difference rather. And, um, you know, just being there for your mates and for each other really helped with that that grief and that, traumatic incident mm. yeah you just you're still in a war zone and you got a job to do and yeah you just being there's enough sometimes you don't have to have all the answers I guess yeah, yeah so true Emma mm. so true I think sometimes the what seem like the little things you know sometimes can be the big things and and really matter down the road don't they yeah down the track yeah yeah and Brett was killed uh, by an IED, wasn't he? Yeah, instantly yeah. killed, yeah, from an IED. Such a shit weapon. Yeah, yeah isn't it? Definitely. It really is, yeah. And and so you flew in on the dust-off bird and picked him up and brought him Yeah, back. that's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me and one other member um, from SOTG. Really sad times. And I know you sort of, you're there perhaps for the ramp ceremony, but you're not certainly getting to a funeral because that happens way back in Australia. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we had a, a small service um, for Brett, which was lovely, and as you say, attended the ramp ceremony. And then, you know, his official funeral and service was obviously back home with mm. his family, yeah. 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 Tough times. Incredibly tough times, yeah. And how did you find sort of coming home after the high tempo of that kind of operation? Yeah, I remember coming home and 
I just felt like I had all this time. Like, you know, you go from five months of really high tempo, you know, stressful environment, you know, whether it's the patients or, you know, being solely responsible, the lack of sleep, you know, the the threats of the, the rockets, like, you know, it's quite an o- overwhelming, I guess, to all senses. So to come home, mm. I remember feeling like I had all this time and all this space and I really, and that in itself was overwhelming, which may sound bizarre. I remember though, lining up at the post office, you know, for a, I think back then it was 50 cents stamp. And I remember waiting in this big line for like 40 minutes or something ridiculous to spend 50 cents, but I didn't care. Like I just thought how cool that I can, I don't need to be anywhere and I don't, you know. Yeah. It it sounds like (laughs) a very silly story, I know, but I just remember feeling and even going into Coles and going up and down the aisles. And I remember ringing my sister who I'm really close with and I said, like, I've got all these choices. Like I I don't know what to do, you know, like for five months kind of you eat what's put in front of you and – I found, um, you know, yeah, it was, it was quite a big adjustment coming home. Obviously, lovely to to see family and friends, but yeah, it, it, it had a challenge. It had its challenges as well. Yeah, yeah, and there's not that big time to decompress either. It's a couple of days, um, as you know, as opposed to kind of a month or something. Absolutely. Back. Yeah, so you're really in an environment, as you said, you're getting rocketed by the Taliban, seeing trauma casualties, you're just busy with other stuff, with your gastro, with your coughs, colds or holes. Yes, yes. Um, You know, you might be flying off on the odd AME and then boom, you're just back in in coals doing the shopping. (laughs) It's, it's, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you've put it nicely. Yeah, it is. It's it's big, isn't it? So what sort of... Uh, you sort of reached the pinnacle of your career and what sort of drove you then to say, uh, oh, I want out and I'm going to join the ambulance service as a paramedic? Yeah, I think for me, the whilst I love my time in the Defence Force there and the peaks are very high, but, but for me there were, the troughs were quite low. And when I say troughs, I mean but in terms of clinical exposure and, you know, doing what we do best, assessing and treating patients, you know, and being in Afghanistan and having that higher tempo and and seeing patients every day and and making those decisions a lot on, you know, on my own, it just made me realise that I wanted to do more of this. I wanted to be a clinician full-time. Obviously, there's a lot of additional work and responsibilities as a nursing officer you know you're you're quite the administrator at times when you're you're um, back at base and you know I think too after this you know highlight of my career I thought you know I've I'm comfortable I'm very proud of what I've done and now I I want another challenge and I I um, applied for ambulance service New South Wales as a paramedic yeah, nice. Glad to hear it wasn't your your annoying new LT that happened to match <laughs> being me. Oh, thanks for reminding me, Emma. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you applied for ambulance. What was that process like? You hadn't done a paramedical science degree, but you'd done nursing, and you know what was the sort of selection process for them to kind of bet you for that position? Yeah. So. 
historically, um, and I'm not sure what it's like right now, but historically, it's quite a lengthy process. You know, if you can kind of apply and get your foot in the door within 12 months of ambulance, at the time I applied, you know, you're doing well. But I obviously had the advantage. I came in as a registered nurse with critical care experience. So I actually applied for um, a position. It's called, well, it was called 3CT. So you're level three, the C you can cannulate and T you're a trainee. So they recognise that you've got knowledge and experience working in health, um, working as a critical care nurse. And then that process normally takes between kind of seven and 12 months. So instead of um, three years vocational entry of um, it takes three years to become a qualified paramedic. It took me about seven or eight months. Um, yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, do they do any additional training with you in Roselle? Yes, yeah. So I went to Roselle um, for my initial training. So um, there was only myself and one other gent who were doing this 3CT pathway. Um, and obviously that's very different now. And then we were in a class, you know, 30-odd, other trainee paramedics so a lot of you obviously there's a whole lot more to being a paramedic than simply being a clinician able to you know do a primary survey for example so you know a big step for me was like just learning that the surrounding logistics I guess and the protocols in that they have in place um you know even extrication and and you, you know obviously very different equipment so um, yeah, I, I certainly have had an advantage being a nurse, but there was still so much more to learn, more from yeah, the operational. Learn their system. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you love it getting on road and doing those jobs? You know, from the little old lady. Oh, I loved it. Off through to you know the MBA and the trauma and absolutely loved it, yeah. Emma. And that's um, why I guess going back to when I was quite a junior nurse and working in emergency, I remember, um, you know, I was always in awe of the paramedics, how, you know, they could bring patients in and, you know, do all this amazing work under pressure and they're always so calm, you know, and just the additional responsibility and skill set that they had. Like, and I just couldn't wait to to be a part of that, you know. As you say, yeah. it's the diversity of the job is one thing I absolutely love about it. You know, one minute you're in a little old lady's home, you could be in a school playground, you could be at the top of a a cherry picker. You know, I've got some, you know, I say weird and wonderful stories, you know, jumping in a some tinny boat because the patient, um, you know, <laughs> located at the bottom of their multi-million dollar home, that like a waterfront property, and that's the best way to access them because they've got a tib-fib fracture, but they're down by the water. Like you really have to be quite flexible, I think, and innovative and, you know, almost yeah. creative with your, yeah, treatment of your patient without sounding like and a cowboy. Think, yeah, <laughs> and what stands out in that time? Did you ever think, you know, wow, <laughs> that was he- that was a hectic night or? Yeah, gosh. Um, oh, there, there's loads of jobs to remember. Um, and I think what always made it interesting was, you know, the surrounds, as I said, you, you know, a, a lot of it you can't, you didn't learn at Roselle, you don't read in a textbook, you know, from riding in boats to travelators to, you know, going in a cherry picker one day to being under the new, I think it was like M7 tunnel, 
yeah, numerous multi-cas incidents, you know, and, and I'm, I may sound like I'm glorifying what's done, but it's hard work. It's really hard work, yeah. um, you know, and and it takes its toll and, you know, that's exactly what happened to me. It takes its toll on you, you know, whether that's physically, emotionally, mentally. I, I think doing what we do for such a long time um, will eventually affect your health. Did you feel a bit burnt out sort of uh, after a decade on road? Yeah, absolutely I did. Um, And it's interesting, like I was saying kind of what drew me, what attracted me to join the ambulance service initially, you know, and I I had a, a great, you know, motivation for that frequent intense clinical exposure, but I guess ironically that became the reason I took a very long break from ambulance service. I said, yeah, just that compounded trauma, like that repetitive trauma, and you, you don't have time to process one job before you're going to the next job. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because you're so busy. Absolutely. You just, just go, go, yes. go. Yes, yes. Did they do clinical debriefing well, do you think? I know in the Army it was always huge. You did a recess, you'd, you know, you'd pick it apart, talk about your fixed sustains, improves. How was that in ambulance or was it just so busy that it was just straight out of one thing into the next? Yeah, often. I mean, for, for really big jobs, um, you know, and there's obviously certain criteria that managers, you know, kind of spark a red flag, you know, this needs to debrief, but... You know, I, I found the hot debriefs like immediately after were always good and beneficial, um, but they didn't always happen. And as you say, you're so busy and, you know, a lot of the time you want to be back out there. There's very much a culture, you know, not to sit around and have a yarn, but, you know, back in the truck and off to to help your mates or, you know, to help the next patient down the road. So, um, yeah, I very much think it's a culture. And, and look, I think it depends where you work um in saying that everywhere is busy now but you know years ago when I was quite new to the job um there were certain you know certainly certain sectors that were renowned to be busier than others you know other stations you could recline um you know and and have some downtime but um I spent most of my career in the southwest and yeah it's, it's quite relentless in terms of kind of I say what's thrown at you yeah and, and I guess in terms of danger you spent time in a war zone how does a Saturday night in an ambulance in Sydney compare oh geez that, some, <laughs> you're unarmed I was gonna say you're unarmed, you've got no like infantry With, protection no, no M4 <laughs> no body armor um, <laughs> um yeah interesting question and I, I guess in short I can confidently say I've treated more gunshot wounds in southwest Sydney than I ever did in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, which yeah. we have a bit of a giggle at, but it's it's quite sad, isn't it, when it's so close to home, you know? It is sad, yeah. But, um, yeah, there's a, a lot of, you know, I think as a as a paramedic um, working southwest Sydney, it's quite well-renowned for shootings and stabbing, sadly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel vulnerable sometimes in the back of that vehicle with a patient is intoxicated? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you certainly do. And I think, you know, you really have to, whilst I think 
most paramedics and health professionals are, are quite selfless and, you know, you you're putting the patient before your needs a lot of the time, but um, you need to take that step back and, you know, the basics of danger and, you know, if it's not safe, then you are staying put in the ambulance, you know, whether that's down the road, you're staging around the corner, you know, waiting for the, ensuring the environment is safe um, for you mm. and your partner, definitely. Mm. I think, um, and again, there's almost an expectation that that's normal. Like it's quite the... The abnormal is very much normalised, I think, as a paramedic, if that makes sense. Yep. Like what, what most people would think is abnormal and, you know, ridiculous is kind of what you do, what you put up with. Like, you know, even, you know, whether people being physically assaulted, spat at, verbally abused, um, you know, they're obviously the not so pleasant um, parts of the job. In saying that, I think too, it, it very much depends on the, the individual, you know, there's... A lot of different personalities um you know you, you can't always de-escalate a patient you know that's high on ice you know history of mental health they've been on a binge um you know what a, a great combination on a saturday night you know they're yeah. really challenging patients um you know and you can pull out all the tricks you have in your back pocket but you know unfortunately paramedics are still abused yeah and these people are really unpredictable sometimes. Yeah. Very, very unpredictable and, and obviously really unwell. Mm. So you had another kind of career shift after sort of that decade in ambulance and went up to the Territory. What have you been doing up there? Yeah, we um, in about 18 months ago, we decided, or actually, sorry, it was about two and a half years ago, um, we like the idea of travelling. Um, we do a lot of camping, uh, my husband and our, our two kids. Um, we love our outdoor adventures. Um, so we always wanted to get to the NT to explore. You know, we thought we'd take some long service and go on a bit of a road trip. And then my mate actually from New South Wales Ambulance worked up there with St John's for a couple of years and, and he kind of planted the seed a few years ago and, it was kind of then I realised, you know, I could have the best of both worlds. I could work in a different environment um, and travel and explore, you know, some of Australia. So, um, yeah, we we packed up the house in a week. Um, things kind of moved quite quickly. And this was mid-COVID, of course, so the borders are opening and shutting and I'd secured a good job. I remember I rang the, the CEO of this private organisation. I said, look, I'd... I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. Like the borders are closed and, you know, I just remember thinking, you know, I must, like how, how I must have looked at that time. Like I haven't even stepped a foot in your office, but, you know, here I am saying I'm not going to be there for day one. But look, it all worked out in the end. And initially we went up there. I um, had a position as a intensive care paramedic working at a large oil and gas site. Yeah. So they have a medic on shift 24-7. So a lot of it you're kind of on standby, I guess, for when something goes bang. But And we had a few medical, a couple of surgical um, presentations, um, but mainly it's primary health and uh, quite a diverse role, did a lot of education, you know, you're doing drug and alcohol testing, hydration testing. So, yeah, very different job for me great lifestyle position um, for me and my family as well. We had a lot of time to, you know, do travel around the, the beautiful top end. And then, yeah, a few months 
of doing that, I then secured a position with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, which, you know, I think to date, Emma, was my favourite yeah. job of my, you know, career, I guess. So, yeah, I worked as a vaccination nurse with the RFDS and would fly to remote Indigenous communities to administer Pfizer vaccines during the COVID pandemic. And it was just an amazing experience to be able to protect our vulnerable remote populations from COVID, you know, and to be travelling to these really remote areas. You know, I went to an island off East Arnhem Land a few different occasions, went to another small homeland which was only accessible via air during the wet season. And it was, yeah, a really special job. And I just love getting, like, amongst the the locals in their communities and, yeah, finding and seeing, I guess, a lot of the the um, Aboriginals live quite traditionally, you know. They're, they're, they're hunting, um, they're, they're cooking um, open fires, like, out the front of their places and, um, you know, they might be doing their artwork um, using you know, local clays and, and colours that they've collected or um, weaving pandanus. Um, yeah, it was just fabulous. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the biggest challenges are in that Indigenous health space? Is it access? You know, their health outcomes are historically so much mm. poorer than white Australia. Very much. Yeah, and I think for, like, particularly with COVID, you know, it was obviously a global pandemic and unprecedented times for all of us. And it was very difficult initially to, I guess, to sell, I say sell the Pfizer's, you know, trying to get people's consent because, you know, there, there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, yeah a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Um, obviously, there was, you know, a phenomenal amount of deaths from the Delta variant to start with um, and that's why there was the big initial push to try and, you know, kind of administer these COVID vaccine to every corner of Australia, which I love. Like, there was just no barriers with flying doctors. But, yeah, with that came that resistance because, you know, a lot of the, the selling point was, you know, if you get COVID, you're going to get really sick and you have to fly to the mainland and fly to down hospital, you might end up in intensive care. And But then, of course, when COVID first hit, or by the time it hit NT, like they did very well, I think, to keep it out for so long, but it was the Omicron variant. So not many people got very sick. So there was a bit of resistance. I remember then going back a few weeks later to do the second dose, you know, and a lot of them refused and they said, no, like this is white man's disease. Like this is... You know, you told us we would we might die, and you know we've a lot of us have had COVID now, and we We're got okay. to stay home, and yeah. you know, so there there was a lot of and I say and rightly so, you could see exactly why they had that resistance. Yeah, it's a tough sell at that point, isn't it? A very tough sell, and I guess we kept changing the goalposts, didn't we? Like it was frustrating enough yeah. for the likes of you and me working in health, um, but you know, for the these vulnerable population, you know, as you say, they're only you know, doing it very tough. And then, you know, you're saying, oh, no, hang on, you can have a second dose. Let's make it a third dose now. We have a fourth booster. You know, that that was difficult. It was a difficult sell. You know, you went some days, you could do 100 in a day to 
you'd go back a few weeks later and you'll do like three vaccines in a whole day and wasn't through not trying. You're still working a 10, 12-hour shift, but, yeah, yeah, difficult to, to sell. And obviously their, their culture, um, you know, they're really tight with their mob and their family and, you know, the news travels fast. You know, if, if someone got, you know, maybe some side effects from a vaccine, again, that would be enough for, for no one then wanted the vaccine. Yeah, but... Overall, it was a, a fabulous um, opportunity, I think, as a vaccination nurse. So what's next for you? You're staying in the Territory? Um, well, no, we're, we're back home now. Yeah. Um, we've been back about 18 months okay. and I'm currently working as a practice nurse within an, an Aboriginal medical service. So in a nutshell, I guess we provide culturally appropriate primary health care and related services to the local Indigenous mob. Quite a diverse role. I, I really like it, actually. It's um, like the nurses have numerous responsibilities. It's very much a team approach. You know, you work closely with the GPs, Aboriginal health workers. Um, we have on-site, like, psychologists, numerous visiting all- allied health, pain specialists, diabetes educator. We have um, numerous services that we offer. And, it's yeah, it's a great team to be a part of. Yeah, what do you think, Tash, was the biggest job you've ever been to in that extensive career you've had? Well, good question, Emma. Um, a, a certain job, I guess, that, that comes to mind when I was working as an intensive care paramedic with New South Wales Ambulance was attending to a, a patient with numerous gunshot wounds um, upon our arrival, was early afternoon, kind of one, two o'clock in the day. Um, the patient was lying on his driveway in traumatic cardiac arrest. Loads of people, obviously um, bystanders, everyone's coming to have a sticky beak. Wow. The medical retrieval unit consisting of a, a doctor, a critical care doctor and a critical care paramedic were there. You know, there was... Um, manager there etc um and yeah what a amazing job like yeah to, to be involved um in this particular patient's um traumatic event um resulted in a roadside clamshell thoracotomy mm-hmm. um in the patient's driveway um with subsequent internal cardiac you massage that every day that's for sure no, definitely not. Um, you know, you hear about these things, I guess, in your training. Um, but, yeah, to see it happening and to be part of that, yeah, was just amazing. And, you know, we transport the patient. They continued um, – we continued internal cardiac massage en route um, to the closest trauma hospital, you know, where we, we threw absolute every resource and piece of equipment at this patient gave him the the very best chance of survival but obviously if you're you know you're having a clamshell thoracotomy things aren't not um, a good day. really no. no it's not a good day at all um and he ended up being pronounced to see sometime after but you know i've also attended numerous shootings stabbings you know i guess the list of and mostly the memorable ones for me are 
are the big traumas, you know, decapitation, amputation, you know, attending patients on trains, planes, Navy ships, difficult extrications. And I think sometimes too, though, the memorable jobs aren't always the big kind of gory blood trauma. For me, some of the memorable jobs are ones that you have some emotional connection with. You know, for me, it's a, mm. a job in particular where I spoke to the, the mum and dad um, and had to inform them that their four-month-old baby boy had died. You know, they're, they're the jobs I remember and I remember how I felt at the time, you know, that, you know, you're taking on a lot of the, the parents and the, the family's immediate grief and, yeah, it's... um. It's a big challenge, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just with that guy who had the multiple gunshot wounds, this is in Sydney, right? And That's and, right, yeah, southwest yeah, Sydney. Yeah, what had he been shot with? Like, do you know what sort of weapon it was that did that? No, no. I, I don't know what type of weapon, so I can't um, – I don't have other details. Yeah, it was just a, a drive-by shooting, the patient – um, I believe was walking to his letterbox um, yeah, and there was right. a drive-by shooting and yeah. obviously the offender wasn't um, on scene when we arrived. Um, yeah, but I just remember, yeah, the, the crowds and crowds forming and, yeah, big big yeah. job, big job, but um, amazing to be, you know, a part of that and, you know, what a great learning opportunity, I, I think, too, for everyone involved. I just say it's... Not a, a procedure you see um, done, certainly not pre-hospital yeah, very often. Absolutely. I've seen, I think, two in my career, both were in Afghan, both not with good outcomes. But, yeah, yeah. It's, okay. Um, it, it's very confronting seeing someone's chest open and their heart's exposed and literally squeezing it with your hand. And while the doc's trying to find a bleeding vessel to clamp. Yeah, that's out there. Very, yeah, yeah, extremely confronting, as you say. What would you say your biggest challenge in life, either personally or professionally, has been? Yeah, tough question, Emma, but I, I think for me it, it's quite an easy one to answer. It, it's definitely a personal challenge of mine that occurred in 2019 when our baby boy was diagnosed with congenital heart disease just after his second birthday. Um, it, it came as a massive shock to all of us and I kind of relate it to, you know, when we were, in, I say eventually informed, it started off as a kind of a routine virus and a couple of short hospital stays and then he just didn't get better. So when we um, had a routine follow-up with the GP and he detected a heart murmur, you know, next minute we're seeing a paediatric cardiologist. Um, and to be honest, I, I was not prepared for this diagnosis. Yeah. I really thought they were going to reassure us that, you know, this heart murmur was from the virus and that it would self-resolve, you know, as often happens with little people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when the cardiologist told me that our son had congenital heart disease, which obviously has no cure, um, and that he required somewhat urgent surgical repair. I I just felt like there was an absolute sledgehammer to my head. Um, very overwhelmed with many different emotions. And, you know, I guess whilst it was a great outcome, he ended up having 
open heart surgery and then a, a subsequent stay in paediatric intensive care unit and then the cardiac ward. Yeah, I would say it was a great outcome. He's now six um, and he's absolutely thriving. But That's awesome. That, yeah, absolutely, yeah, he's a little champion. Mm-hmm. Um, the associated anxiety, the immense fear um, yeah. was, you know, undoubtedly the single biggest challenge of my life. I think, you know, to be told by our son's amazing paediatric cardiothoracic surgeon, whilst it's a low risk, you know, mortality, um, you know, could occur, was absolutely terrifying and, you know, left me feeling very powerless. I think as a mum or as a parent, your primary purpose is to protect your kids, you know, and keep them safe. Um, And and I think just in the kind of that few weeks, obviously my anxiety levels went through the roof, but – even after that event, you know, weeks, months, years after, it's. I think it made me more anxious at home and at work and just kind mm. of the unknown. It, it certainly on, I guess, the silver lining is it, it has it certainly strengthened my rapport and connection with families of unwell children, um, you know, because you could really appreciate and understand their their concerns and their fears and whilst it's not, you know, exactly the same from one parent to the next. I um, I probably really experience compassion fatigue, I guess, yeah. you know, and have those physical, emotional, psychological um, impacts of this, you know, what I say is trauma um, yeah. to, you know, me and my husband and and our family. But And, and it certainly made us reprioritise, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how your personal life obviously has an impact on your professional life and career doesn't it yeah and and how can it yes. not I mean yeah yeah so you're working as an ambo when he got his diagnosis and you're still going to jobs and seeing other sick kids and trying to kind of I guess keep that appropriate relationship without letting your own yes. fears overwhelm you in in your ability to function as a clinician it's sort of humanises you even more, but it would be incredibly difficult. Yeah, that's a good word, Emma, and you're exactly right about the humanises you. I think sometimes, you know, whether you're on Warlock operations, in pre-hospital care, you're, you know, you very much have to put on a mask, don't you, and kind of mm. detach yourself emotionally. But, yeah, after this um, kind of event with our son, I... Yeah, I, I felt even more connected to, to patients, but that's, you know, it can, it's not always favourable, is it? Because then you're taking that emotional and psychological um, impact and burden. Yeah. Do you think that probably rolled into your feelings of kind of being really burnt out in that job after a decade of being on road? And Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've said to numerous friends, I, I feel like I was never the, I guess, the same paramedic Again. after um, after that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're obviously really humble with, you know, your talking about your career and, and the things you've been involved with. What What advice would you give nurses and people wanting to get into paramedicine 
in if they say a junior in their career what sort of hot tips would there be from you um hot tips i i think the most important one is to look after you, yourself we're, we're very good at looking after others you know working in the health professional well sorry working in the health profession um, we're quite we're very selfless um, always putting other needs before our own and whilst that's a beautiful trait to have and probably why most of my close friends are nurses or paramedics we need to look after ourselves first mm. um, I also think the other important thing is never underestimate the value of kindness and what may seem like a small thing to you you know holding someone's hand making a cup of tea giving them a warm blanket and let's be honest, they don't take a lot of time or resources to do any of these things. Yeah. Um, but they they actually turn out to be the very big things for many patients and can significantly help in that acute period or of stress and grief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people, people probably might not remember what you did, you know, what line you put in, what drug you give and, you know, how, how you help them, but they'll always remember how you made them yes, feel. Yes, absolutely, right. So by doing those things, those acts of kindness, they'll they'll walk away for, with less trauma from what was a very bad day for them. Yeah, absolutely. That's right, Emma. I think the other um, thing that I would say from personal experience is don't be afraid to get some life experience first. You know, being a medic, a nurse in the army, working with the ambulance service, that will always be there. But I think um, it's important to, you know, they they can be quite challenging and overwhelming um, professions and careers. And I think a, a lot of young people perhaps underestimate um, the impact it will have on your health. Um, yeah. I remember as a, a very junior paramedic and um, we were called to a job where someone had been decapitated and at the time I remember thinking you know oh wow like this is really interesting I've never kind of seen mm. this and I wanted to to go and have a look like from a very you know dignified and pro professional capacity and my colleague gave some great advice and she said you know you see enough demons in this job she said I would advise you not to go you know and kind of add to that already mm. big headspace and I think that's really important because it's easy to kind of get caught up in it and want to see and do everything in your first 12 months, but you need to look after yourself as well. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in that for sure. Yeah, there's a lot being done in that sort of mindfulness space for veterans now and, you know, preventative measures so that you're not just taking on this compassion fatigue and this toll constantly but well, I think we've still got a way to go hey absolutely we really do but as you say yeah. there's there's a lot more being done now and recognized um you know I know ambulance a few years ago implemented I was going to say mindfulness um sorry I can't think now it was like a, a well-being was a three-day course um on your yeah. well-being you know and at the time it was you know people were a bit resistant but it was fabulous. I love that the service was being proactive, um, you know, and I think that's sometimes what's missing in these big organisations. They might be reactive, but we need to be proactive and, you know, 
recognising our people need these tools before it happens. Yeah, instead of waiting till they're completely broken. Yes, yep. <laughs> yeah, you're getting in there, yeah. Tash, thank you so much for your time and telling us about your career and thank you for your service. Thanks so much, Emma, and thank you for having me today. You're welcome.